Okay, turn to 1 Samuel chapter 17. We're going to go through verse 32 through 50. We'll be covering, I'll try to summarize the rest of the chapter or basically the scene. This is a famous story. Um, this is one that virtually almost everyone knows, whether you've been raised in church or not. You, you might be familiar with the story of um, little David versus Goliath. And so we're going we're gonna to tackle that this morning. And, um, but first I'm just going to read through, I'm going to read through our verses. We're in 1 Samuel 17. We're going to cover verse 32 through 50, and then we'll pray and we'll get into it. David said to Saul, let no one lose heart on account of this Philistine. Your servant will go and fight him. And Saul replied, this is King Saul, he replied, you're not able to go out against this Philistine and fight him. You're just a boy. And he, he's, been fighting, he's been fighting men from his youth. But David said to Saul, your servant has been keeping his father's sheep. And when a lion or a bear came and carried off a sheep from the flock, I went after it and I struck it and I rescued the sheep from its mouth. And when it turned on me, I seized it by the hair and struck it and killed it. Your servant has killed both the lion and the bear. This uncircumcised Philistine will be, will be like one of them because he's defied the armies of the living God. Verse 37, the Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will also deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. Saul said to David, well, okay, go and the Lord be with you. Then Saul dressed David in his own tunic. He put an a coat of armor on him and a bronze helmet on his head. And David fastened on this sword over the tunic and tried walking around, but he was not used to them. I can't go in these, he said to Saul, because I'm not used to them. So he took them off. Then he took his staff in his hand, chose five smooth stones from, his, from the stream, put them in the pouch of his shepherd's bag, and with his sling in his hand approached the Philistine. Meanwhile, the Philistine, with his shield-bearer in front of him, kept coming closer to David. He looked David over and saw that he was just a boy, ruddy and handsome, and he despised him. And he said to David, Am I a dog that you come at me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. Come here, he said, and I'll give your flesh to the birds of the air and the beasts of the field. And David said to the Philistine, you come against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel whom you've defied. This day the Lord will hand you over to me and I'll strike you down and cut off your head. Gotta love the vigor of youth here. It's just phenomenal. Today I will, give, I will give the carcass of the Philistine army to the birds of the air and the beasts of the earth and the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. And those gathered here will know that it is not by sword or by spear that the Lord saves, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give all, all of you into, your, into our hands. As the Philistine moved closer to attack David, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet him. And reaching into his bag and taking out a stone, he slung it and struck the Philistine on the forehead, and the stone sank into his forehead, and he fell. Boom! Face, face first on the ground. And the whole army went, dang. No, that's not it. So David triumphed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone. And without a sword in his hand, he struck down the Philistine and killed him. Okay, we've been 
starting, just starting to look at the life of David on Sunday mornings. And before we jump into this story, let's pray. Lord, I, I pray that you would guide us through this passage. I pray that you would show us what you want us to see, not what we might bring to the passage, not what we want to read into it, but show us from the scripture here what you're trying to say. I pray that you would use me to guide. I just submit to you. Holy Spirit, speak. Show us how you speak through this ancient text. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay. Um, Famous story. Really important story and a famous story and often misinterpreted. Um, Often given a moralistic or examplist type of of a moral to this story. And it's understandably, it's not that those things aren't necessarily in some ways true, but one of the things, we talked about this last week, one of the things that we need to do when coming to the Bible is read the Bible on its own terms. We tend to subconsciously, semi-consciously bring to the Bible things that we don't even know we're bringing there. We bring, whether it be a Sunday school lesson or pop culture or uh, just the milieu of our lives, we tend to bring things and we read certain things with, with, um, with certain kind of glasses on, through a filter. First thing we need to do is take those off. We need to realize this was the word of God to someone else before it was the word of God to us. It's the word of God to us, but it was written for a, a particular purpose. Um, this, this passage is all about courage. Courage was important back then, right? Having courage was a virtue that people needed back then. The reason I say back then is because it's not a virtue that's necessarily taught as a, a main virtue today. We don't focus um, teaching our kids courage necessarily more than we teach them maybe other virtues like honesty or uh, work ethic, uh, those types of things. Because back then, um, life was a lot more unstable. There were armies invading lands, right? And so, and your kids were for sure in that future army, especially if they were boys, And so teaching a boy courage and valor and how to stand their ground, even, you know, in the fray, when it got bloody, that was an important virtue to teach. Even throughout the, um, into the first century, um, we we look at the classic teachers like Socrates and Plato, actually before the first century, um, and one of the main virtues that they were teaching children was courage. How do we teach our kids how to be brave and to stand their ground, and to fight even at cost of their own lives, and those types of things. Um, even as unstable as it might seem in recent times, we live in a far more stable society than in, in the ancient world. We're not necessarily afraid that the town next, that, that Monroe is going to launch an assault on Seattle, and we need to teach our kids to be brave, Right? However, however, I'm going to make a case that bravery comes in many forms and cowardice and fear comes in many forms. It's something that we all have and something that we all need. And I'm going to do that by marching us through the three main characters that we find in this passage. We see Saul and his reaction to what's going on. We see Goliath, right, Um, and his approach to a battle. And we see David and his approach to a battle. In Saul, um, we see true cowardice. We'll start with him. We see fear, right? Um, First, let me just kind of try to summarize. Let me recap what's happening in in this this chapter. Um, The Philistines 
And the Israelites, of course, were great enemies. They're always constantly in battle with each other. That's one of the main features of the books of First and Second Samuel, is that there's this rivalry, this huge bloody battle between the Israelites and their far superior neighbors, the Philistines. They, they have got a lot better technology, a lot better warfare, as we're going to see just by the stuff that Goliath is wearing. Bronze was, uh, is basically tech. Um, they were, it was a superior form of warfare. Um, where the Israelite army, they're just getting caught up with this type of stuff, okay? Um, they're fighting the Philistines. They came, they camped on both sides of this valley. You've got the Israelites on one hill. You've got the Philistines on the, on the other side. And this valley in the middle is kind of fight land. That's where it's going to go down at some point. Some, the armies are standing off, but the fighting hasn't begun yet. But when it does, it's going to happen in this valley in the middle. These two armies are going to charge kind of into no man's land. This is where it's not safe in the middle. I always think of, you know, scenes from uh, a movie documenting World War I, where these armies are in the trenches. And there's a point where armies, they leave the trenches and they, they yell, they come at each other and they fight in the middle. And that's the place where you don't want to go. And even if you've got fallen comrades in the middle there, you go to save them at, at, at great risk to your own life. Because that's the place where people don't usually come back. That's what's going on here. You've got the Israelites, you've got the Philistines. And the stakes are high. Whoever wins this battle, if you read the rest of the chapter, whoever wins this battle, the stakes are high. Whoever wins, the, the losing team will be the slaves of whoever wins this battle. This is quite literally defining the fate of either of these two nations. This is a big battle and a lot's at stake. Um, all of their families, you know, think of the army, the soldiers in these armies. If I lose this battle, my kids are going to be slaves to those guys. I mean, think of that. This is the kind of mentality they have at this point. Um, and then this enormous figure begins to bellow and shout. He comes out of the Philistine army into the no man, into, into the, the death zone. This enormous man. This, what this, what the chapter calls a champion of war. Um, probably, most scholars think probably around eight feet tall. With this incredible warfare. He's been fighting men since he's been a kid. He bellows and shouts. And we're told that he says, this day I defy the ranks of Israel. Give me a man and let us fight each other. Let's just decide this right here, right now. Why go through all the trouble of having the armies come and meet each other? I'm their best man. You send me your best man and let's do this right now. And he starts to set the terms. And verse 11 says, on hearing the Philistines' words, Saul and all the Israelites were dismayed and terrified. There it is. There's our fear. You know, there's a, a scene in the Lord of the Rings where this ugly, ugly, ugly orc, who's the commander of the orc army, they've surrounded um, uh, 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 Gondor, I think. They've surrounded the, this, this city, and he sniffs the air. You guys remember the scene? He goes, fear, the city is rank with it. You can just smell the fear on the text here. They're just dismayed. Saul and his army, 
they don't know what to do. Um, there it is. So here you've got Saul. The king is not being very kingy at this moment, right? He's not, this is not Saul's best moment. He's not going through and saying, hold your ground, men. You don't hear this valiant speech from Saul to hold the, his men. He's scared. The king's army is not being very valiant either. They're scared. They're shaking. They're hiding in this place of safety. And so here's the great challenge of the, the men of Is, uh, the, the Israelite army. If they don't meet this challenge, they're going to be in slavery and so are their families. But if they do meet this challenge and have to meet this guy, they're gonna, they might get slaughtered. That's the rub of the chapter here. They're not in a good spot. Here's what we've got to ask ourselves, therefore. What is courage? What does it mean to be, to be brave? Because that's, that's what this chapter begs in a situation like this. What does it mean? In verse 32... Um, David actually gives us a pretty good image that helps us out um, when he says, let no one lose heart. Because that's exactly what was going on at this point. Everyone was losing heart. <laughs> um, and what the translation of that phrase, let no one lose heart, it actually means something along the lines of, let no one shrink back. Let no one lose their ground. Um, let no one go backwards. That's the idea. He's saying, stand. That's what it means to have Courage in the simplest form here as we're building this definition from the ground up. Simply from David's idea, it is stand even when you might lose. Even when you might die. Stand and hold your ground. Don't fall away. Don't fall back. And he's thinking of, he's thinking of a battle because in a battle... Maybe the key to surviving and winning a battle is the ability just to stand. Sometimes that's what it means to win. You just stand there. You hold your ground. You don't fall down. You don't fall away. Whatever you do, the worst thing that can happen in a battle like this is for your army to be seized with fear. And what do they do? They turn around and run. That is the worst thing, right? The army's in the middle of the fight. They realize they're losing and they go... Everyone surrender and they just scatter and run. That's the worst. That's what it means to lose. You have to be able to stand when the onslaught comes. Right? Now, of course, in battle, um, literal standing there without budging is courage. In a, stand, in a sense, standing without budging in any form and in any way of life is really a, is really a test of courage. Um, for example, the ultimate example of this is, um, well, I don't know if it's the ultimate example, but a big example that comes to my mind is um, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in Daniel. And in, Dan in the book of Daniel, these three Jewish guys named Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they don't do what the king wants them to do. King Nebuchadnezzar, one of the most brilliant and fearsome kings to ever set foot, foot on this planet, he erects an idol of himself and he commands that anybody at certain times his band his king band is going to play a play a, a dirge and everyone at that moment when they hear the, the music they bow down and worship this this statue and he says anybody that doesn't want to do this it's fine I'm just, it's fine. If you don't want to worship the statue, it's cool. It's fine. I'm just going to, at that point, 
throw you into a fiery furnace. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they refuse to do this, of course. They worship Yahweh. And they worship Yahweh alone. And I remember this, this I'm not going to quote it directly, but I remember this, this great line. Nebuchadnezzar is staring these guys down. He commands that the furnace be heated up even more. Um, and he stares these guys down and he says, if you don't bow down and worship me, or worship this, this statue, I'm going to throw you into this fire. And he says, and what God will be able to save you then? And you remember what they say? They say, our God will be able to save us. But here's the great line. They say, but even if he doesn't, we still will not bow down and worship you. And there's a great definition of courage. Courage is doing the right thing even when success is not available. Even when it won't turn out good. When it won't turn out well. Courage is the ability to do what you know is right even when you're going to lose, even when you're going to die. Or, or courage is the ability to, to do it when the right thing to do is to die. Maybe that's the right thing to do. Where do you get that kind of courage, that kind of inner strength? Um, well, Saul did not have that. Even though we don't face a, necessarily a battle like that, necessarily, we still need that kind of courage, and cowardice shows up in our own, li- in our own lives in other kinds of, other kinds of ways. Um, I see this all the time as a pastor. A lot of times, what we're dealing with and the problems in our lives, especially when it comes to hurting other people, you know, we say, oh, you're sinning or being selfish. Well, a lot of times the reason we're sinning or being selfish and hurting other people is because of the cowardice in our own lives. Um, I think of the families that, uh, families that will, ne- or career folks that will neglect their families, don't spend time with their kids because they're too biz- busy having a career. The real issue there is fear. I'm afraid of not having success. I'm afraid of failing. I'm afraid of not getting the job or the climbing the corporate ladder or whatever the case might be or wanting the, I'm afraid of not getting the validation, the accolades, the, what I need. And because of that fear, I'm going to neglect my family. That's really the, the issue here is cowardice. I'm too afraid of one thing to be on the battle line where I need to be. I'm not standing here because I'm afraid of this other thing. I, a lot of, I remember I was a part of a building project at a, uh, for a church, and there was this one volunteer that was there morning till night on the weekends, and he would wake up before he went to his shift at work and work at the church, and then after he got off, he would switch into other clothes, and he would come and work at the church till night. And I remember the pastor at the time was a really wise man. And he confronted him and said, please don't work on our church anymore. (laughs) Because your wife and your kids are being neglected. And I'll never forget that he said to me, he was mentoring me, and he said to me, sometimes it's a lot easier to come and to work yourself to death and to overwork yourself until you're exhausted. It's actually easier to do that than to go home and face what's going on at home. But this man needs courage to go home and take the energy he's bringing to building our church and, and put it into his family, 
into his marriage, into his kids. That's courage. And sometimes a family situation is a losing battle. You don't see the solution, but you got to stay in there. A lot, of, a lot of the reason the things we face is because of cowardice. Where do we get this kind of strength? Um, we see this also in warriors, uh, people that come home from war, highly decorated for, for acts of valor on the, on the battlefield and yet can't get in there with their families. See, it, the, re- the point is, we're all fearful we just have different fears. The, the, the guy that is a soldier, he may not be afraid of the battlefield. He may not be afraid of his next deployment to Kuwait or wherever it is that he's going for our government. Maybe that doesn't scare him or it doesn't scare him as much as being a family man. I know ministers and pastors that are in my order that are scared to death of being quote-unquote normal people. In other words, if I'm not pastoring, I lose my value. And that's really, it's become an idol, and it's really a form of cowardice. I'm here pastoring, and I'm not going to let it go because I can't imagine doing anything else. Or I don't, God has shelved me if I'm not doing this. Where the reality is, um, God, can, God can and will and wants to use you, where you wherever you're at. It's not the end of, of anything. We need bravery. We need bravery. Well, we are cowards. That's what I'm trying to tell you. Good news. Welcome to church. We're cowards. God bless you. Our cowardice is everywhere. Do you see it all over the place? Fear makes, here's what fear makes you. Fear makes us self-absorbed. Fear is the opposite of love. It makes us focused on ourselves instead of other people. Um, you know, when perfect love actually casts out fear. Fear makes, makes you self-absorbed. Therefore, if something, um, if something that's over you is just making you think about yourself and you're not doing for others what you, would give, what you would give to yourself, if you're not giving that to other people, then you're giving in to fear. You're not, you're not standing your ground. We're the cowards. We need courage. How do we get it? Okay, let's look at Goliath. Um, Goliath represents... Um, your great fears and David you know a lot of people do, so here's how most people will, will interpret this scripture Goliath is your biggest fears and David is you at your best Goliath is what you're facing he's the giant in your life how do we become like David and face those fears the, and in that sense the moral of the story is hey be like David if you be like David and you're faithful and you go out there in the name of the Lord, he'll, you'll conquer every giant, you'll forge every stream, you'll go over every mountain and all of those types of things. But if you read the story of David and Goliath and you read the stories of other great heroes and histories, um, you, you learn that Goliath is actually represents who, who we usually think David is. He is consummate bravery. If you've ever read the story of David and Goliath, told like what I just said, you know, be like David, and if you do, then, then you know, the bigger they are, the harder they fall. That's kind of usually how this is, how this, this is preached. If that's ever to inspire, you usually leave inspired. And sometimes you feel crushed. I could never do that. You think, yes. 
you know, suck it up, man up, put on your big boy pants. But, that, but most of us know that's way too simple. It's a little bit, life's more complicated than that, isn't it? Isn't it? It's a little bit more complicated. Um, this Goliath actually, actually represents what we typically think of bravery. Here you've got Goliath who's not afraid of anything. Not once in, in this story, in the narrative, in, the, in this passage, do you get any hint that Goliath is afraid at all. Right? He is superior in every way. He's superior in his stature. He's huge. He's, he's been warring since he's been a youth. This is a guy that grew up learning how to kill other people. He was bred to be a warrior for his nation. And he had this body that was perfect for it. And he's high tech. He's got all this state-of-the-art armor, bronze, that's what that means. He's got this javelin that's really more like a, like a tree trunk than it, is a, than it is a spear. And there's nothing about Goliath that, that shows that he has any fear at all. This is the consummate guy that says, I'm going to stuff every fear. I'm going to face the challenges. He's the, the epitome of confidence. Every time we watch a movie, especially us men in here, and we see a warrior... That, that's in the middle of a fray and he stays calm and cool and collected and knows exactly what to do and that little voice inside of us men that says, yeah, that's what I need to be. That's who Goliath is. In fact, we, we immediately come to this story and we think Goliath is the villain and yes, he is. He is the villain but that's not, how the, that's not really how the chapter describes Goliath. The chapter describes Goliath as the champion he is a champion. He is the one that conquers. He's the one that is undefeated. He's the hero that's going to show up and get the job done for the Philistines. He's the one that they're putting all their hope on. We're going to be saved because of this guy that can handle it. Um, then he says, or uh, he says to David, he mocks him. So we think, okay, David is the hero, Goliath is the villain, but I'm here to say, no, I don't think that's true. What the narrator is giving you are two alternate approaches of heroism, I'm convinced of it, between David and Goliath. Because Goliath is called the champion in verse 4, David David is a champion. He's the hero. David is the hero. He has courage. David has courage. But look, David is small. He's a kid. He's a boy. He's unthought of to be the hero. Goliath is the, uh, is the ultimate choice. But what, what's the problem with Goliath's version of courage? Well, I'll just say this. Goli well, the, in my opinion, the number one... How should I say this? Goliath's courage... His very courage was his very downfall. Don't you think? Why? Because Goliath didn't see a threat when there was one. Goliath didn't see, he was so confident, he was so brave, that he didn't, he didn't see a problem when there was a problem. Here's what I'm saying. We don't want to lose fear. Fear is very practical. Right? 
There is a, if this place was on fire, God designed you with fear to get you out of the burning building. Fear is a sobering thing. It helps you see threats that are really there. We live in a world that says, hey, just say to yourself, there, everything's going to be okay. You're going to conquer it. Uh, you know, um, in, the, in the counseling world, just imagine yourself facing that giant and slaying that guy. And, that's, and imagine it enough, and imagine it enough, and imagine it enough, and soon you'll be able to do it. Use your imagination to picture you conquering that challenge or facing up to that bully in your life or doing those things and get rid of the fear. If you can just get rid, look in the mirror and say, you got this, Mike. Man up, slap, snap out of it. Get out there and face those fears because you got this, man. And usually that's how we read, that's how we read the David and Goliath story. Be, you know, be like David. Man up and get out there and face those giants. And you'll be, but you don't see David ever doing that. Never do you see David going out there, throwing the rock, boom, and Goliath goes down. And he doesn't, David doesn't turn around and say, see everybody, if you just picture doing it the way I did, you'll be able to do this too. Come on. You don't see that. Why? Well, here's a few reasons behind our, our, the way we do fear in our culture. This is the Goliath way. Picture that you can do it. Be strong. Overcome your fear. The problem is with that, there are some things that are worth being afraid of. Is everything okay? Not really. There are bad things. I mean, have you read the news recently? Bad things do happen to people all the time. Whether they're confident or not. It doesn't hold up to logic to say to yourself, just conquer the fear and face it and everything will be okay and you'll be able to do it. Just be like David and go out in there and face that and you'll be able to do it. The problem with that is people go out there in that way and then bad things happen. People get hurt. Innocent people die. Tragedies happen all the time. He has this incredible, Goliath has this incredible sense of self-esteem. Why? Because Goliath's courage, which is a counterfeit courage, um, his courage is, is the banishment of all fearful thoughts. But that doesn't hold up. And because of that, it undid him. David was a threat to him, but he couldn't see it because he was so confident. I'm fine. I can do anything. Um, there's this movie out. I can't remember the name of it. Darn it. It's with, um, uh, I think his last name's Channing. I'm so sorry about all this. And it's Brad Pitt, Channing, and uh, what's that gal's name? Um, oh my gosh, you guys, I'm so sorry. This is why I should write things down. What is it? No, 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 not J-Lo. No, 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 it's brand new. It's with Sandra Bullock, Channing, and Brad Pitt. And it's a brand new movie. And Sandra Bullock's character, she writes, this, she writes fantasy novels. And Channing is her, is her model for the book covers. So people can imagine. You guys know what I'm talking about? Darn. What is it? The Lost City. That's what it is. That's what it is. So in this movie, she gets kidnapped. And they hire Brad Pitt's character 
who is this ex-Navy SEAL professional guy that goes in and fights battles. And the guy is amazing. He goes in, he finds Sandra Bullock, and in just this incredible fashion, he just kicks all the bad guys, like, makes it look like it's easy. He's got this flowing blonde hair. It's, there's satire involved in it. It's extremely funny. But he destroys all these guys, and, he's, and Channing, who's this very fearful guy, he's looking at him like, man, I want to be like this guy. This is the guy that we all need to be like. And Sandra Bullock is quite taken with him too. And there's this scene where he gets her out and they're running from the bad guys and they get to this car parked out in the jungle that's ready for them. And, and uh, she, he sits her down and he goes to, he goes to cut off her, her restraints and she's like, who are you? And he's like, I'm the one that's been sent to save you. You know, it's like this total amazing moment. And he's like, he, he's making a pass at her. He's like, you're safe now. Can I get your... And all of a sudden, in the middle of his sentence, the sniper bullet comes and takes him out. Just like that. And he's dead. He's done. And now it's Sandra Bullock left with this fearful uh, other guy. And I just think to myself, that's reality sometimes. Sometimes no matter how expert you are, no matter how good you are, no matter how confident you are, something unforeseen can happen, and it's it. It's over. It can take you out. How do we deal with this? How do we deal with real life? Well, first of all, I would say we need fear. You don't want to get rid of fear. You know that, right? You don't want to get rid of fear. Fear is helpful for you. In fact, I, will be, I would be, go so far as to say you can't truly be brave without a dose of fear, right? It's fear that keeps you safe. Otherwise, you're, it, it, well, we call it suicide. We call it being reckless. If you don't have a fear, you're going to jump into something without any sense of, of wisdom, caution, discernment. You're just going to kamikaze into something. But with fear, you still have to face it, but you, you're aware. But if you're too fearful... You're, you, you don't approach anything. You need a mixture of both. Um, where do you get the courage to do something when there is no other way you'll get through it? That's what we're looking at here. There's no way. Um, how do you do this? I'm thinking of courage like, oh, I can't remember her name. Did I write it down? There's, there's, this, there's a woman named Edith Course Evans who she was upper class on the deck of the Titanic um, and the boat was going down and you know they, on the lifeboats that they had they had a, they had a few number of the, the boat was overpacked with people they only had a limited uh, 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 number of boats that took people to shore and they reserved those for the upper class people the aristocrats and this woman um, Edith Course Evans was, she had a place reserved for her, and she was about to get on this boat, and she realized, and the ship's going down, Titanic's going down in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean, and she sees another woman who is not upper class, she's lower class, but she knows that she has children waiting for her at home. Evans had no children. And she stopped and she said, I'm giving you my seat knowing at that moment that she was signing her own death. There was no way out. She was giving up her life 
for someone of a lower class so that that woman could get home to her family. That's the kind of courage I'm talking about. How do you get that? The selfless kind of courage. How do we do that? Well, um, where do you get the courage to do the right thing when you know you're going to die? When, where do you get the courage to do the right thing when the right thing is to die? That's what we all need. Faith? Well, let's look at David here. Um, that's what a lot of people say. Have faith like David. If you just had the faith like David, everything would be all right. Well, that's not really the story. True courage, um, well, in David, it's in his speech. His speech is extremely long. Have you noticed that? It's longer than the battle sequence. David's speech is longer. Therefore, that's the narrator's way. That's the Bible's way of showing you that this is the key. He says, you come against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty. And there people, Renee, would say, just like you said, that's it. There it is. David had faith. That's what, that's what we have to have. David had faith. Um, and do you know what it is that we mean when we say that? I mean, in a sense, it's true. You're not wrong, Renee, in a sense. Um, but in a sense, it's, it's really unhelpful. It doesn't help when the rubber meets the road. Do you know what most people think and most people believe when they hear someone say, if you just had faith like David, then God will work in your life and be able to handle it. If you just had faith, then you'll have courage. Do you know what you're doing? You're just putting, you're just spiritualizing the Goliath in the story. You're saying, you're just making Goliath a Christian version of Americanism. Have faith and go out there and face your fears. Let me just, let me show you how to do this. How do we get this true courage then? The courage isn't, the, I'm here to tell you, true courage isn't, isn't, according to this text, isn't banishing thoughts of fear by looking at yourself. With faith in God, even. Okay? It's getting something in your life that enables you to quickly, swiftly do the right thing in spite of your fears, which, you don't, which, by the way, you don't want to lose your fears. You do not want to lose those, right? How do we get there? Well, first of all, listen here. Remember last week's sermon. We have to come to the Bible on its own terms. First of all, let's not put ourselves in the story where most, most people put ourselves in the story. This is the key. Let's not put ourselves in the story where most people put ourselves in the story. Look, I'm here to tell you, you are not David in this story. Who are you in the story? Who am I in the story? Yeah, we're Saul. We're the cowards. We're the fearful ones. We're the ones cowering. And if you, now look, if you look at it that way, it changes everything about the story. Everything's changed at that point. Because who does God, God does not send an example to save the fearful Israelites. Who does God send to save fearful, cowardly, weak people? Not an example. He sends a savior. He sends a savior to save weak, cowardly, helpless people. Not an example. Remember last week? 
I said the wrong way to read the Bible is reading it from an example, an example perspective, a moralistic perspective. If you just go out there and do this and be like David and have faith and put your faith in God, you'll be able to slay the giants in your life. Now look, it's good to have faith, but you need to realize who we are in this story. It's not David. Nowhere does the narrative um, imply that we're supposed to be like David. In fact, do you know what the narrative how the narrative implies these people are saved? Not through example, but through imputation. That's a theologically um, word. It's through imputation. In other words, God's Savior is a representative. He's not an example. It's right in your text. I'm not making this up. It's right in your text. What happens? What are the terms? Goliath comes out and he says, here you go. I'm going to... Send out your best warrior, and I'll be these guys' best warrior. And if I win, my army wins. I'm going to fight in represent. I'm going to represent them in the fighting. Those are the terms. And you send out a guy that will represent you. And if he wins, you win. And if I win, my people win. And if I lose, my loss is their loss. And if your guy loses, your loss is their loss. This is called, and it was actually quite common in the ancient world, it's called representative fighting. They would send out the best guy, and your army, your nation, your people won because of his battle, because of his victory. That is what this is saying. Now, you know where I'm going with this at this point. David represents Jesus, not you. You're Saul. You're the army. You cannot beat Goliath. And you dare not go out there in your own strength and inspiration and say, I'm going to face every Goliath in my life because there's actual fear and you'll, you can die from Goliaths. You are no, that's the entire point of him describing in detail who Goliath is. If you, in fact, uh, I can't remember his name. I was reading this commentator. I think his last name's Alder. He's a, he wasn't a, he's not a commentator. He's actually a, an expert in ancient literature. And one thing that he pointed out was that in ancient literature, in ancient text, very little detail is, is put into, is put into the, it's very sparse. It's very, it's not wordy. And he says about this text, therefore, because this narrator takes so much time to, to, describe in detail Goliath he's trying to make a point he's saying this guy is unbeatable there's no in other words by him describing Goliath he's describing that there is no hope for the Israelite army don't try to go out and fight him you will die from it they have good reason to be scared so therefore, the message of this text is not go out and fight those unbeatable things with your, you know, look yourself in the mirror and say, you're made in God's image, man. Have faith and go out and do it. And you will. That's not what it is. It's saying someone has to go out and fight for you. Someone better than you needs to fight on your behalf and his victory is your victory. And that, my friends, is Christianity. Christianity is not, I go out and fight my battles in the name of God and look, look at all that I've accomplished. That's not Christianity. That's moralism. That's every other religion out there. Go out and be the best guy I can, the best example I can be. The Bible says, no, your Goliath is sin and you don't stand a chance. 
You are not good enough. This goes right against the American mantra. Self-made people. Go out there and pull yourself up by your bootstraps and get out there and conquer. That's the gospel Americans love to read in the Bible. That's why this uh, interpretation of David and Goliath, the other, the exemplar way, gains so much traction. We leave our churches in America going, yeah, man, I feel inspired and empowered to go out there and face and stick up to that guy. Now look, there's some nutritional value in that, absolutely. But you need to understand that's not Christianity. Christianity says you cannot do it. You will not defeat Goliath. You need someone, you need a savior to go out and fight for you. That is David. David, like Jesus, is not the hero that the world would, ex- would expect. He's a boy. He doesn't have armor. He's primitive. That's what the slingshot and the rocks mean. He's, he doesn't have the right stuff. He's coming from a primitive state of mind where Goliath has got all this high tech. He's far superior. He's not anybody that you would expect, and yet he comes and he saves. And on that, uh, and on because of his victory, Israel has a victory. Here's what it means to be a Christian. To be a Christian, I come and I say. I have victory not because I'm so good, not because I've done something so great, not because I help little old ladies across the street, not because I've become morally superior to anybody else, not because of any of those things. I'm a Christian because I'm lost, depraved, weak, and could not save myself, utterly helpless, and someone else came and fought the battle for me. His name is Jesus, and he he did it in my place. He fought as me. David fought as Israel. Jesus fights as you, as humanity, and he he gets all the victories that you have all lost. Do you see what's going on here? And because of that, a Christian says, I am victorious. But a Christian cannot be proud about that. I cannot go and look down on somebody else if they're not Christians. I can't go and look down on other people because they're sinning in a way that I'm not. That's not, that doesn't compute because I am the coward in the story. I'm just like everyone else. But God saved me. I'm saved through someone else's behavior, not because of me. You know what that does? It makes us, we can go out and we can can be human again. I can go out and I can meet with people without being judgmental or snobby. I can give my life to people. I can be brave. How can I be brave? How does the gospel make me brave? Well, in Hebrews 11, there's these stories of these great heroes, by the way, including David. We call it the Hall of Faith. These great heroes, they're all enumerated. And here's what the writer of the Hebrews says. Listen, this is really important. All these heroic people from the Bible's Old Testament. Here's what the writer of the Hebrew says. He says, remember Abraham, remember Moses, remember David, remember all those guys. Then he, fi- then he finally says, but, listen, fix your eyes. That means not just remember. Don't just remember David, but fix your eyes on Jesus, who is the, ar- the, the finisher of our faith. The word in the, in the Greek is archegos. You know what that means? The what of our faith? It means the champion of our faith. Jesus, 
you're not the champion of Christianity. Jesus is the champion of humanity. He says, after listing all of these heroes in Hebrews 11, he says, but fix your eyes on Jesus, the champion of your faith. God sent the ultimate David, Jesus Christ. He is weak. He was little. He didn't save us just in spite of his weakness, but he saved us through his weakness, just like in David's story. He didn't just save us from physical death like David, but he saves us from eternal death. He didn't just save us like David did at risk of his own life. David risked his own life. Jesus saved us at cost of his own life. He gave it. He faced the ultimate nightmare. You know what the ultimate thing you should be afraid of is? You remember what Jesus said? He said, don't be afraid of a person that can just take your, kill, your, kill your body, you know, you know what I mean? Like kill you, like a robber that can come in and assault you and kill you. Don't just be afraid of that. He says, here's what you should be afraid of. Be afraid of God who can send your whole soul into hell. In other words, there will be a day that all of humanity, including Christians, will stand before God and we will give an account of all the things that we have done right and wrong and the bar is Jesus, the bar is perfection. How are we doing? How are any of us doing? He does not grade on a curve. Jesus said the greatest commandment is love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength and love other people the way you love yourself. In other words, prefer other people's dreams before you. Champion other people before you champion yourself. Give of yourself completely for your neighbors, for strangers, for people you don't even know. How are we doing, people? Do any, does anybody make it? How are you facing your Goliath right now? The judgment before God. No one's doing well. Jesus did. When he died on that cross, yes, it hurt him physically, but that was like a mosquito bite compared to him facing God on our behalf. And God said, you're perfect. You've done it all right, just the way all mankind was meant to be. You loved me with all your heart, Jesus, and you loved everybody else as, as yourself. But he didn't do it. He did it for you. He, in fact, the Bible will say he did it as you. So that now God can accept you. And God looks at you. This is the, the New Testament calls this being in Christ. He looks at you and he sees God, Christ's perfection. Think of that. He looks at you, a cowering Saul, and he sees perfection, bravery, righteousness, innocence, devotion, others' focusedness. He sees Christ. That's what Christianity is. Courage is not, let me just end by saying this. Courage is not the absence of fear. Do you know what it is? Courage is the presence of joy. Think of that. Courage is not the absence of fear. It's the presence of joy. Courage is not, the, it's, it's the presence of enough joy that you're no longer afraid of the future. Have you ever been that courageous before? There's been times in my life when I've been facing something tremendous some impending doom or some trial that I couldn't hope to get over. And God had given me a promise in the midst of that, spoken to me in the midst of that trial that didn't change the fact that I was, I was facing something really hard. 
but it gave me so much joy that it just didn't matter anymore. Yeah, I might get fired, but it's going to be okay because God loves me. I'm still afraid of it, but God loves me and ultimately I'll be all right. I've seen this work through. So I, I, I was working with a, with a married couple that was a, they were just not doing well. They were about to get a divorce. The husband was, was hanging on for dear life. He was just fretting because his wife was going to leave. And finally, he, he calmed. He went through. He finally just let it go. He was able to surrender. Why? Because God said to him, even if your wife leaves, and even though it's your fault, I still love you and I'm not done with you yet. Did he want his wife to leave at that point? No. He still fought as hard as, as ever. He still did what he could. He still gave her every reason to think that he was a repentant man. He did everything he could, but he wasn't so scared anymore. He was able to say, I've done my bit, now I respect what you need to do. And it's, I'll be okay now. I'll be okay now. Why? He was filled with joy. It wasn't the end anymore. Do you have that? Jesus did. How did Jesus face the cross? You remember? Hebrews goes on to say, fix your eyes on Jesus, the author, the champion of our faith, who for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame. What could give Jesus so much joy that he could take on the cross and humanity's failure? The only answer is you and me. He had heaven before. He had that before already. But the one thing he did not have was you. The one thing he did not have was me. He knew because of this, I'm going to endure this cross. I'm going to go through the ultimate nightmare. I'm going to stand before God and he's going to judge me, what everyone's afraid of. And I'm going to go through it perfectly because I know I'll get Mike at the other end of this. That gives me enough joy. Was Jesus brave going to the cross, you guys? Someone say no. Please no one say yes. Do you remember the Garden of Eden? He was scared. Sweating great drops of blood. He kept his fear. He wasn't Goliath in that moment. Bring it on, cross. I'll defeat you. That was not Jesus. He was like, oh, Father, if there's any other way, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, for the joy set before me, I'll endure this. That is how we get our bravery, you guys. To face whatever it is you're facing, to unseat your greatest fears, you have to have a greater joy. Parents know this, right? Because you, you love your kids so much, you'll, you'll do things you never did before you were a parent. <laughs> Without even, sometimes, without, why? What's the difference? Love. Did you become some braver, stronger person? No. You're just, you have a greater love than your fear. That's the only way we're going to get through. So, you're not David in the story. If you think you are, you might be inspired, but you'll be crushed because there's the Goliaths out there, you will not be able to face them. And, and even if you do, the ultimate Goliath standing before God on judgment day, you don't, stand a, you don't stand a prayer. Nobody does. What do you need? 
Am I going to tell you? That's the, this is how you know this is a Christian sermon. If it's not a Christian sermon, here's what you'd hear. So go out there, guys, and keep grinding. Try harder. Repent, confess your sins, and then try to be a better person. That's not what you're going to hear. You're going to hear, no. You need to face what's out there, and you will. But because someone has faced the ultimate Goliath for you, the ultimate nightmare, he came he faced God. He was perfect, and yet he died for all your failures. And now his victory is your victory. You're victorious because of him. That's, amen. That's why I signed up for this stuff. That's right. Because, you know, I looked at other religions, I studied other religions, and they crushed me. They crushed me. If you're honest with yourself... You look at other religions and you go, I can't do that. I can't do that. Be honest. I can't do that. Christianity said, I know you can't. I've done it for you. And now you can go out there with joy 